Welcome, everyone. I am Jennifer Jenkins, Clinical Professor of Law at Duke Law School and the Director of the Center for the Study of the Public Domain. And I'm your host today for this episode of the Duke Law Podcast. So in this episode, we'll be talking about copyright law by examining a case that's made headlines as it's made its way to the Supreme Court. The case is called Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts versus Goldsmith, and it centers around the question of whether Andy Warhol violated Lynn Goldsmith's copyright when he used one of her photos without a license. The Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments on October 12th. Joining me to discuss this case is my friend and colleague, Professor Chris Buccafusco, the Edward and Ellen Schwartzman Professor of Law at Duke. Chris is a wonderful new addition to our faculty who writes extensively about a vast array of subjects, including expressive intellectual property, or as he calls it, fun IP. I'm delighted to have him here. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. This is going to be a fun chat. I know. I'm so excited about it. Okay, so let me start by setting things up. Lynn Goldsmith. She's a photographer known for her photos of rock musicians. You may have seen her photos of Bob Dylan, Bob Marley, Patti Smith, and for our purposes, Prince. Andy Warhol, who you probably have also heard of, used her photograph of Prince as a reference for 16 works, mostly silk screens, in his Prince series. Goldsmith's original photo is a realistic portrait of Prince, whereas Warhol's images look kind of Warhol-y. They show a flattened, unnatural depiction of the artist, and many of them feature his signature bright colors contrasted with stark shading. So the question, as I mentioned earlier, is did Warhol infringe Goldsmith's copyright? Or is the Prince series legal under copyright's fair use doctrine? If you want to actually take a look at the works, because it's hard to see them on a podcast, you can find a link on the podcast website. So what we have here is one artist's copyright pitted against another artist's ability to build upon prior works. Who should win? Intuitively, you might look at the Prince series and think, that's just Goldsmith's photograph with effects superimposed on it. No way you can do that without a license. But someone else might look at it and think, mm, this really seems legit. And if they're channeling their inner art critic, they might say, mm, Warhol turned a faithful portrait of the artist into a commentary on the dehumanization of celebrity. And how do us celebrities are no longer real people, just icons of fame. Sure, Goldsmith's and Warhol's works share the basic outlines of Prince's face, but no one can claim to own that, right? The question for the justices is, how should copyright law decide this case? So turning to you, Chris, let's unpack some of the fascinating issues here, starting with some background. First, Goldsmith's copyright. What does the photographer's copyright cover and what is her exclusive derivative works, right? And second, could you provide, I know this is impossible, a brief introduction to copyright's fair use doctrine? Absolutely. Thanks so much. This is a fascinating case uh, and, and trying to condense it into 20 minutes uh, is going to be challenging. Um, perhaps not quite as challenging as it's going to be for the justices to actually make some sense of it ultimately in an opinion, but we're going to do our best here. So Goldsmith is the owner of a copyright in a photograph that Warhol clearly used and copied. One of the first things to understand about copyright law here is that not all copying is copyright infringement. Some sorts of situations in which the defendant, right here, um, Warhol, has used the original work don't constitute copyright infringement. And so, so this is what the court's going to have to figure out. So what's, what's Goldsmith's copyright? Goldsmith's copyright uh, constitutes the original aspects of the photograph. Whatever we might be able to think of about why the photograph of Prince 
looks the way it does, right? As Jennifer said, not Prince himself, right? Not his physical features, his visage, right? But the ways in which she photographed him, the light, the shade, the pose perhaps, right? The features that she added in taking the photograph. Those are the things that she's allowed to copyright. Um, so the question here is how much of those things, right? And in what way did Andy Warhol use them? Did he use them in a way that copyright law wants to say, no, that's bad, infringement, or copyright law wants to say, no, that's okay. This is actually good that other people sometimes copy others' works. And that is a tricky one. So moving into perhaps an even more trickier issue, what about this fair use doctrine thing? What's that all about? Right. Um, and, and people think about fair use in a bunch of different ways. But in, in copyright law, uh, it's been codified in the act and, and constitutes certain sorts of uses that the law deems to be like, socially valuable. Right, so so kind of paradigmatic uses of copyrights, fair use doctrine include like commenting or criticizing other people's works. Right, you have to be able to copy them sometimes in order to poke fun at them, to tease them. Right, sometimes people need to be able to borrow small bits of people's works to use them for classrooms or other kinds of educational purposes. Right, and so so here the question is where the Warhol, Warhol's use also constitutes a fair use. Right. The fundamental decision, right? the fundamental question for determining fair use, uh, according to the Supreme Court in an old opinion uh, involving two live crew and Roy Orbison, is whether his use is transformative, right? whether the purpose and character of Warhol's use of the, the Goldsmith photograph is transformative. And what that means, according to the court, historically, has been whether it adds new meaning, message, new aesthetics for a new purpose. Right, whether it transforms the work in a way that is new and valuable and special. Here's the challenge, though. Right, when we think about Goldsmith's copyright, Goldsmith's copyright covers not just her work as such. It also includes, as Jennifer said, a right to prepare derivative works. Well, what's a derivative work? According to the statute, a derivative work is a work that has transformed some underlying work. So here we are, right? Some kinds of transformations of works are infringing derivative works. Other kinds of transformations of works are non-infringing fair uses. And ultimately, this becomes the problem for the court. How should we think about the nature of the transformations that the original owner, Goldsmith, gets to control? versus the kinds of transformations that other creators in the world get to make without having to go back to the original copyright owner and either ask her permission or pay her money. Thank you, Chris. That was an amazing introduction. I'm going to tell your students all to tune in to that. Um, so you mentioned, so fair use is codified in the statute. Doesn't say anything about transformative use explicitly there, but in 1994, 28 years ago, we got the case you mentioned, Campbell versus Acuff Rose, that gave us this notion of transformative use, so that's the key piece of Supreme Court precedent here. That was a while ago. Since 1994, transformative use has been on an interesting journey. The 1994 case involved a rap parody by the group that I'm sure you all know and love, Two Light Crew, of Roy Orbison's song, Oh Pretty Woman. So the court said parody has an obvious claim to transformative use, but parody is just one example of transformative use, and the category goes well beyond that kind of transformation to describe what kinds of things might qualify for fair use. 
and it has proven susceptible to different interpretations in the lower courts and a fair amount of controversy in the literature. So it's been applied in cases involving everything from parodies to appropriation art to indexing by search engines. And indeed, last year, the Supreme Court said that Google's use of basic software components was transformative when it was necessary to offer programmers an innovative tool for working in a new and different computing environment, namely Android smartphones. So it's been on a journey, but the high watermark, and this is what the Second Circuit called the high watermark for transformative use, arguably maybe going off the rails a little bit, was in a case from 2013 called Carrie versus Prince. Yeah, Prince. A different prince. I know, right? I know. It's like, wait, Prince again? Huh? No, this is the appropriation artist. <laughs> this is the appropriation artist, Richard Prince, who used photos by Patrick Carrieu and 30 different artworks. And in that case, the Second Circuit said, well, you know, we think a secondary work can be transformative, even if it doesn't comment on the original work or serve those socially valuable purposes that Chris alluded to, the illustrative purposes that are in the preamble of the statutory provision that codifies fair use. And they went on to say that Richard Prince's subjective intent was irrelevant. So he had testified, he's like, oh, I'm not trying to create anything with a new meaning or a new message, the language Chris referred to. And I had no interest in Carrie's original intent. And the court said, well, it doesn't matter what he said in his deposition. The test is an objective one. And then the court sat in and decided how they thought Prince's work may reasonably be perceived. And they said, oh, 25 of those works, we think they're sufficiently transformative, fair use, looks good. And they remanded on the other five. Firestorm of controversy opened the door wide to transformative use. And that case, among others, led to the concern that transformative use, this notion that's supposed to be nestled into one of the fair use factors, was effectively supplanting the fair use framework that's in the statutory provision that Chris mentioned and unduly encroaching on the derivative works right. So that's the background. The Warhol case comes up. And it, before it got to the Supreme Court, it gave the Second Circuit another bite at transformative use and appropriation art. So, Chris, can you, <laughs> briefly again, can you give us a rundown of what happened in Warhol? Sure. So here we have uh, the district court, the trial court, reading the tea leaves from the Second Circuit, saying, you don't need to comment on the underlying work. It's sufficient if this work has a new meaning or message, right? We're going to look at the work and try and determine whether these two things feel the same, feel aesthetically different. And according to the district court, they did, right? When the district court looked at the Warhol image, it saw something very different from what it saw when it looked at Goldsmith's photograph. Uh, according to the district court, Goldsmith's photograph of Prince portrays him as not a comfortable person and a vulnerable human being, whereas Warhol's Prince series portrays him as an iconic, larger-than-life figure. And thus, it is transformed, right? The, the ways in which these two artists have interpreted Prince and what Prince means and the ways they have explained him, expressed him in these works, right? according to the district court, vastly different. And different, at least in a way that, that fair you should care about. The case was appealed to the Second Circuit. And, and I think they, they had been clearly been reading the criticism, it seems like, uh, that, that Carrie had gone too far, that they had, they had perhaps allowed transformativeness to expand uh, too far to incorporate a bunch of different subjective features, uh, to allow any time an artist could come forward with any vague claim to to aesthetic difference that this would mean uh, that the work was uh, now transformative and, and need not be licensed. 
And so it seems clear here that they're they're trying to back up uh, and walk away from uh, what they had said in Carryu without fully doing away with it, right? So so this is courts kind of reinterpreting themselves. Uh, and so they say here, look, not all new meaning and message are the same. There are lots of situations in which other people may add new meaning and message to a work, and it's not a transformative fair use, but rather just a regular old derivative work. Consider the court often likes to talk about movie adaptations, right? If a movie is adapted, right, a book is adapted into a movie, then the people engaged in the creation of the movie are clearly adding new meaning and message. The aesthetics of those two works is radically different in many cases, but the court says no one would ever think that that's a, a fair use that anyone could come along and make their own Harry Potter movie off of the book just because they, you know, change the characters around or something like that. Here, the court also, the Second Circuit also says, these works have the same purpose. They're both just there to portray Prince and show what he looks like. And unless the works have a distinctly, an entirely distinct artistic purpose, we're not likely to find fair use. Finally, the court says, we're just really, really worried about allowing folks to come in and tell us what they think these works mean. Right? That the artists will be able to tell us, you know, here's what I intended to do when I copied this work. Right, or that critics will come in and say, "Well, these works are clearly phenomenally different in important ways," and that the result of such a, a ruling, the, the Second Circuit seemed to think, was that this would create some sort of famous artist privilege. Right, that that when then when Andy Warhol does it, then people see it and say, "Oh, that's a Warhol." Right, but when Buckafusco does it, this is a ah, that's just a infringement. Right, that's just a copy. Right, like why is that guy, you know, selling, you know. Andy Warhol knockoffs on Canal Street, right? Yeah, exactly. I told my class that I didn't think SCOTUS was going to grant cert, and they proved me wrong. Um, you know, I, I was a little troubled by what the Second Circuit said, but I, it was quite clear to me, as you said, Chris, that you know, it was aware of the criticism of Carrie and it was just trying to kind of like correct things a little bit without actually overturning its prior decision. And so Supreme Court grants cert, so I admitted to my students that I was wrong. So what are, what are the two sides arguing? Each party essentially says that the other side's approach is unworkable, quote, and would lead to disastrous consequences. So for Goldsmith, her lawyers say that divining the meaning or message of something like Warhol's silkscreens is hopelessly mushy. How do we know what a work's meaning or message is? You were saying, Chris, I mean, the court get to decide, a bunch of art critics, you and me, you may think one thing, I may think another. They say it's a fool's errand because creators, critics, and viewers will inevitably disagree. And they're concerned that we're replacing the careful statutory framework put in there by Congress with a fundamentally arbitrary inquiry. So they say in their briefs, the next thing you know, altering a song's key to convey different emotions. Whoa, it's transformative. So is changing a book ending so the bad guys win. Or airbrushing a photograph so the subject of the photograph conforms to ideals of beauty. Bam, they're all fair use. And this would eclipse the copyright holder's valuable derivative works, right? And all those licensing markets that go with it. So that's what Goldsmith's saying. The Warhol Foundation offers a different cascade. They say if, when, as you said, Chris, the works serve the same basic purpose, they're depicting Prince. And when one work recognizably derives from another, we're going to just focus on visual similarity rather than looking into the transformation of meaning or message. Then boom, a whole swath of modernist and contemporary art, all that stuff in that wing of the museum you like to go to, Warhols, Lichtensteins, etc. Now they're illegal. 
because the artist didn't make the right kind of aesthetic modification. And they point out that this appears to fly directly in the face of the explicit language of the Campbell case from the Supreme Court in 1994 that instructs us to consider whether the second work altered the first with, quote, new meaning or message. I do find this case tough. Um, I share the concern that the Second Circuit standard could end up privileging certain kinds of art over others, for example, those that obviously alter the source material over those where the commentary is more subtle or intertwined with the prior, prior work. So like a collage, for example, uh, would have a better claim to fair use than art reimagining a single work. That said, I appreciate the desire for a more predictable and stable rule, but we still need to maintain enough flexibility for fair use to embrace the variety and the nuance that is artistic expression. All of that said, I do think the conclusion that a work is transformative clearly should not displace the full fair use framework. So that's my two cents, but I want to hear your five or 10 cents, Chris. How about you? What are your thoughts on the merits of this case, having laid out the arguments on either side and what the Second Circuit District Court did? And do you want to make any predictions about what the Supreme Court's going to do here? Yeah. So I share a lot of your anxieties about, about this case, about how to resolve it. I have even more anxieties about how the court is actually going to resolve it, uh, which which makes me like really nervous as a as a professor of copyright law. But look, this is just fundamentally really challenging, and partly this is the this is the cost of of allowing copyright law to be driven by appropriation art, which it kind of has been for the last decade or so. Right, so much of fair use has been driven by a group of artists whose fundamental interest in art is about pushing all of the buttons about what we think creativity and aesthetics are about, right? That it's about originality, that it's about beauty, that it's about novelty. And all of these folks continue to come in and say, no, it's not that. No, it's not that, right? Um, take the Sherry Levine uh, photograph after Walker Evans, which is just a perfect re-photographing of the Walker Evans photograph, right? It's identical. And clearly people think those two things are valuable, right? This is the challenge you get from trying to derive copyright policy that's supposed to cover all of the ways in which humans are creative and share and work on and build on each other's works from right, this cohort of people who have a particular set of interests associated with appropriation art. And this is a challenging case for me for a bunch of ways, right? So on the one hand, it was pretty clear here that Warhol and Vanity Fair uh, and others were perfectly capable of licensing these works from Goldsmith. Right? So if we think about some of the fundamental uses of, of fair use, they exist to solve situations in which licensing is not going to happen. Right? If I offer you like, right, hey, Jennifer, right, I think your new book is really terrible and I want to tell the world about how terrible it is. Can I please use some illustrations from your book to show the world how terrible it is? Right? You're not going to license that to me. But by the way, like Jennifer's books are terrific and you should read them. Um, terrifically illustrated, brilliant. In any event, right? You're not going to, right? We're not going to come to an agreement over that sort of licensing. That wasn't a problem here, right? Here we've got a situation where licensing was entirely easy, right? They did it before. Presumably they could have done it again. On the other hand, we've got to start to figure out some sort of rules that are going to govern this, right? We want to be able to come up with right? Some sort of ideas, some sort of things to be able to tell artists about what you can do and what you can't do. And the court here, I think, again, is it has some good motivations. 
objective descriptions of works can be more helpful in terms of pro, uh, predictability than subjective intent of artists or hoping that critics will think that your work is cool, right? Looking at the work and judging variation and aesthetics, um, that could be valuable. Unfortunately, here the Second Circuit's version of it is just really bad, right? So, so again, here's one of the anxieties, right? Like this is going to come down to judgments of aesthetics by whom? Judges, right? Like as as we've been warned many times in the past in copyright law and elsewhere, right? Precisely the people that we don't want making aesthetic decisions, people who went to law school rather than to MFA programs, right? So this is this is going to be very scary as well. In terms of predictions, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how this is going to go. My guess, right? So, so I've got a couple of guesses, right? So, so these one that I think had the Supreme Court not reaffirmed transformativeness in Oracle versus Google last year, uh, I wonder whether there wouldn't have been five votes to just do away with transformativeness entirely here. It's not in the statute, right? We know that we've got serious textualist judges on the court, right? All of this, all of this transformativeness stuff was extra textual, right? But, you know, Breyer was on the court last year and Breyer managed to get to write the 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 Oracle versus Google opinion and you know entrench, I I think, at least for a little while, transformativeness. So my sense is transformative is, is going to stick around. I guess my other prediction though is that the judge's moral intuitions here may end up actually trumping their aesthetics, which is to say, um, it seems entirely possible to me that their views about licensing and markets and the ability of uh, a rich, famous artist like Warhol to be able to pay uh, a person like Goldsmith to use her work may actually be driving uh, a lot of the, uh, the ultimate analysis in this case. What that's going to mean for what they say about transformativeness is anybody's guess. There have been so many briefs in this case. They're, right, they're really interesting and fascinating to read. In part, as you say, for like the ways in which they characterize the the Warhol portrait, right? Like this is this becomes the difficulty of of meaning, right? Read through the briefs, and and some people say he's iconic and larger than life. Some people say that he is, you know, a clear statement about you know the difficulties of modern consumer culture, right? It's it's really hard to say what these Warhol images are about, right? So so I think this is this is going to be hard, and and as a copyright professor. Definitely going to give us new stuff to to have to teach and work through. With the newer justices, it's hard. I mean, and you mentioned the the textualist, but you know, I wonder which direction textualism points us in. Because the easy one is, well, this whole transformative this thing is nowhere on the face of the statute. But then the statute is deliberately open ended and uses words like such as and including. And so I've been trying to figure out, you know, where textualism points us here. I do think your point is a good one. That one of the issues in this case is that there isn't the kind of market failure. That it would be if you know you were like, hey, I'm gonna trash your book, can I? <laughs> like, no, we'll give you a license. It will be fascinating to see a what questions the, the justices ask on the twelfth, and b how they ultimately address all of this. So great discussion, Chris. Thank you for joining me, and thanks to everyone who's listening for tuning in. Chris, it's been wonderful having you with me on the Duke Law Podcast. Before we wrap up, I know you're active on social media. Do you want to let listeners know where they can find and follow you if they want more Buckafusco? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm on Twitter at CJ Buckafusco. Uh, that's uh, C-J-B-U-C-C-A-F-U-S-C-O. Please uh, get in and let us know what you think. Awesome. And you can also follow the Center for the Study of the Public Domain on Twitter. We are at Duke 
CSPD. And be sure to check us out on Public Domain Day, which is January 1st of each year for our annual review of works entering the U.S. public domain and why it matters. So thanks again, everyone. That's a wrap for us in the Duke Law Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify to be automatically updated when new episodes are available. And until next time, thanks, Chris, and go Duke.